Hey guys, Lori here. Before we get started, we have an amazing episode for you today talking with Dr. Dan Allender about sexual abuse and recovery and trauma and shame, and it is beautiful. However, there may be some triggers throughout today. So if you are someone who has encountered sexual abuse or trauma and you know maybe this is a tough day for you, just wait to listen to this one. All right, well, here we go. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 83, Sexuality and Shame. Welcome. My name is Lori Krieg and I am the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan and I am here with licensed therapist, Argyle expert and my husband, Matt. Hello. Hey Matt. We also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi everybody. Hey, Steve, you're trying to not do professional radio voice. I saw your face doing not professional. (laughs) I don't know. But today we have the privilege of talking with someone who has made such a huge impact on the world of sexual abuse recovery. Anyone I talk to about the issue of trauma has unquestionably heard of our guest today, Dr. Dan Allender. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much. But I have to ask if we're dealing with an Argyle expert, (laughs) what's the effect of single malt scotch in the northern Scotland PD area has on the weave of Argyle. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Wait, am I the, did you call me an Argyle expert? Or usually I'm an Argyle aficionado. Oh no, it's usually expert, Is babe. It expert? Yeah. Oh boy. Wow. Um, I have no idea. That, oh, no. Is, that is interesting study material and I will have to look into it. Yes. Can He's, I help with the research there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll travel to Scotland. Yeah. We'll try a bunch of scotch. Is that yeah, required here? I think so. <laughs> All right, they got them. I, I, I do expect an answer at some point. Uh, you just can't advertise someone as an expert like that <laughs> and not offer something of the opportunity of greater clarity in the future. Professional disclosure statement will be updated for next yes. episode. I love it. Oh, my word. Well, speaking of professional disclosure statement, actually, just a straight up amazing bio. If you don't know who Dr. Dan Allender is, he is professor of counseling psychology and former president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology in Seattle, Washington. He's the co-founder of the Allender Center, a division of the school that focuses on healing and training in the realms of sexual abuse and trauma. And he travels and speaks extensively on sexual abuse, recovery, love and forgiveness, worship, and other related topics. Allender is the author of 15 books, including The Wounded Heart, which is amazing, and co-author of God Loves Sex. Dan, we are so looking forward to sharing some of your wisdom with our audience and just receiving it. If we're, we're, I believe we're we're all just going to leave here. We're already better. Matt's yes. updated his disclosure statement, but we're really excited to dive in with you. But before we get to some of that hearty stuff, let's get to the question of the week from last week, which is heart driven still. What is something God has been teaching you lately and through what media, like a devotional or a book or just life experience? And Dan, we'd love to start with you. What's something God's been stirring in your heart? Well, I think... Um, I- an awareness of the effect of 
uh, trauma in the African-American community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's We have a number of African-American uh, staff, but we've been doing a lot of reading and thinking at the Allender Center in terms of racial trauma and the role of uh, like a long plantation history of mm-hmm. violation of men and women and children. And mm-hmm. so uh, becoming more aware of that through a book called The Dark End of the Street, has been, it's been heartbreaking and illuminating. Oh, man. That sounds like just such important work. And it was actually something I was thinking about this week. I'm like, there's no way that that's not carried into today. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more of what you guys produce from that because we can all benefit. Matt, Argyle expert or aficionado, whatever you are now. Apparently less expert than I (laughs) once imagined. Argyle wearer. Argyle wearer. (laughs) Yes. Which listener did you resonate with? uh, What answer and and what was your thoughts? Yeah, I I really resonated with what Nicole said on Facebook from Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do more than we could ever imagine. His plans are so much greater than ours. And she said that he is showing this to her through her marriage and her business. And I feel like those are two of the very big stretching points for me right now is just, okay, with, with business stuff going on, with the counseling, um, and then our marriage. Obviously, if anyone has listened to this podcast for the past couple of years, they know we've we've done some growth there. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, for, for me, I, I guess it wouldn't be Ephesians 3.20 personally. It would be more of that spiritual warfare aspect of, you know, really trying to engage with connecting my spirit with God and then actually engaging in the battle that we're all fighting, you know, with, with our real enemy. Love it. Steve, how about you? Who'd you resonate with? Well, I liked what Susan said uh, just through reading The Soul of Shame. She says, I have been working to observe the story that I am telling myself, working to pray and discern what story the Lord is writing for me. Um, I have not yet picked up the book, but since we talked about it uh, here. With Kurt, with, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been real interested. But more recently, we've been talking about lament. And that's where I feel like God is talking to me right now, um, just you know, with Michael Card and... Uh, Mark last week yeah. talking about lament. I went back to lamentations. I've gone back to a few of those Psalms that we talked about and been journaling a lot and just still in the middle of processing it. Uh, but I like uh, Mark's suggestion of kind of like in the little things, comparatively little, you know, um, where you feel the frustration or you feel that, you know, tension of life to kind of practice that, you know, exercise that muscle of lament. Yeah. So that when the big things come, you're sort of prepared for that. I love when you talk about journaling, Steve. I'm like, ooh, healthy Steve. I always know you're in like a healthy season when you start talking about journaling. I love it. (laughs) I appreciated Seth uh, through Twitter, and he said they, and he's just talking about people, they're probably as lonely as you are. So say something. The fear of rejection can be paralyzing, and if you reach out to someone and they're too busy or uninterested, that can be crushing. But more likely than not, even those we think have it all together still long to be seen and heard. And he said, where he learned that, he said, probably on this podcast. So that was really nice. Uh, But I I resonate with that. That's just something that um, God has been teaching me is to really listen to his prompting, even when it feels or sounds in my spirit, just kind of crazy. If I really like believe I'm like, okay, think that this is about right. And I say the sentence, um, sometimes it might be wrong and I get to learn humility. Uh, But sometimes it sounds like a crazy thing to say or do. And it's just strangely right. And then I just learn trust, which is really great. 
Uh, so even reaching out to people like Seth was saying, well, it's time to take Dr. Dan Allender <laughs> on to Goofball Island. Time for Goofball Island! <laughs> And for those of you who don't usually listen to the show, this is the time of the week where we intentionally take a vacation from our problems to borrow from What About Bob and get to know our guests better. And the vehicle we're taking to get to Goofball Island is a fifth wheel. Because we're going to play that 5, 10, 15, 20 with Dan. So, Dan, looking at critical early formative years in your life. We're going to start with age zero and work to age 20 and ask you questions about each of those ages. So starting with zero, what is a strange, funny, or interesting fact about your birthday or place or whatever? Well, I was named after a dog. My grandfather's name was Oliver Wendell Holmes Boat. And when my mother asked which first name or what name he would prefer, uh, I was his first grandchild, uh, he simply said that he despised all his names <laughs> and that if I want, if, if she wanted to honor him, that he, that she could name me after his favorite uh, English pointer. Uh, and he ran, he was a veterinarian and he had a Comanche line, but his favorite dog was Dan. So my name is not Daniel, it's Dan. Oh my word, wow, wow. like Indiana Jones. Was, Similar. Wasn't it he named? Yeah, he was okay. named after the yeah. family dog. Uh, are there any of those names that you listed of your grandfather, right, that you would have preferred? Or are you good with Dan? I'm really good with Dan. It's just so much shorter than Daniel. Yeah, it is. It's true. All right, age five. What was your favorite toy? I think my favorite toy was a sweet, um, actually miniature dachshund by the name of actually Buttercup, but I Aww. couldn't bear that name. So I renamed that lovely dog Dinky. <laughs> so much better. And it was a toy or a real dog? I was a real dog. Oh, man. Yeah. Dogs have like a, there's, there's a, it's, they're integral into your life. Mm. All right. But age 10, let's hope there's not more dog talk, but maybe what was your hair like? Um, profoundly oily, kinky, well before (laughs) black power came into ascendance. Uh, and so I had a very small Jewish Afro. Nice. Hmm. Have you ever thought about reigniting this small Jewish Afro? Um, Well, I have a bald spot uh, really around the center back of my head, which my children refer to as a yarmulke. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay, age 15. What role did you play in school? Like were you the smart one, the popular kid, the sports guy? What was what was your character? Um, I was a young drug dealer and very well appreciated. There you go. <laughs> There's a story there, and that yeah. might get to the, some of that gospel uh, question we'll get to. Age 20, where were you at on the calling trajectory God had for you? Well, I actually was developing some of the skills that I eventually used as uh, somebody who started a ministry or uh, you know a school, and that is a lot of my work has been fundraising. And mm. uh, as a 20-year-old, I was involved in significant uh, illicit pharmaceutical sales, primarily raising money from attorneys, lawyers, doctors, judges, Indian chiefs. Uh, so a lot of that same basic ability to ask for money was being developed uh, at a very young age. 
I can't even how you are describing your story, which I know is a huge part of your uh, ministry life is how you share your story. So I am really excited for us to dive into the heart of the matter. Okay, let's let's just keep it going, brother. How was the gospel, which we flip around Tim Keller's beautiful description uh, in a less shamey way, according to Kurt Thompson, but the gospel, I'm more loved than I can imagine and more sinful than I believe. How was it first good news for you and how is it still? Well, I, my, my gospel um, experience began with my best friend, Tremper Longman III, mm-hmm. when we were 13 years of age. Uh, and the story of how we met, uh, a little too long, but just to simply say that he introduced me to something called the Bible when I was 14. I'd never heard of the Bible. It was simply not a part of my family world, uh, any you know religion of any sort, let alone the Bible. So I had never heard of it. And really around the process of hearing about the Bible, and he was a believer, he was from a Christian family, Uh, it just struck me as absolute asinine. I I was happy for him that he was happy, but uh, but I learned it. I learned the Romans Road. I learned, uh, you know, how to think about, you know, the four spiritual laws. uh, And all of that really had very little, shall we say, effect uh, on my career or my <laughs> occupation. But when uh, the Cleveland Mafia apparently put out a contract on small little satellite drug dealers like myself, um, kind of the gospel all of a sudden got real real at the thought of a drive-by shooting that could t- send me you know, into another world. Uh, and I just, I literally walking down the street thinking I could die any moment. And I just looked at God and just went, fine, fine. Uh, that was my version of asking Jesus into my heart. <laughs> Four letter word, but fine. Yeah. Yeah. So how is the gospel still good news for you? We know we don't just have one past tense testimony. How are you still reliant? Well, I, I think if if one were honest, uh, if I were to say, I think I've become a Christian several hundred times uh, <laughs> in the 40 some years since that moment. Uh, and, you know, if we're asked, you know, but would you have been in the presence of God if you had perished? I, the answer is yes. Yet I think that freedom to be able to say, you know, Jesus has come to mean more and more to me as I age and get closer to death. As I engage the suffering of other human beings, especially in the realm of of abuse, sexual abuse, there is so much injustice, so much heartache, so much rage, so many questions about the goodness of God. And I'm, I'm invited in lament Uh, If we think about lament, as you were speaking about it, as also complaint psalms, Mm -hmm. where there is this sense of of disorientation. Well, I'm invited to struggle with God. And in that, I have found him again and again, like in Lamentations 3, that his, his glory and blessing is new every day. So in that sense, I would say um, I'm more excited about the gospel than I was five years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Hmm. All right. Well, let's keep going there. Um, I've, I've heard interviews with you. I've read some of your books. I follow your online presence and you are an expert in this field of sexual trauma and recovery. And I'm, I'm so grateful as an adult survivor of childhood sexual assault. And we've got another one in this room with Steve, you've shared your story. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, can you please help us understand the gravity? I've, I've heard you talk about this, of just how many people have been touched by the pain of sexual trauma. Well, let me first use the word expert. And, and that is, I, I, I'm sure Matt is an Argyle <laughs> um, aficionado. And I, I would say the more you know something, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. And I feel like I, I do have a lot of experience. It's been my work and career, my writing and thinking for a long, long time. But the more I engage human hearts with this, uh, I still want to say there's an infinite amount to learn about the human heart that we cannot comprehend until we ourselves grow more. And so in that sense, it's back to the gospel. Mm -hmm. As I'm more captured by the gospel, I actually get more aware of how much I need not only to be forgiven, but to learn about the world I'm in. But in answering your question, um, yes. I think the fact is, how long does it take, literally, to abuse a child? And I know one woman who was touched by her grandfather as she left his house, and probably it was three seconds that he put his hand on her breast. And it wasn't an accident, it was a clear molestation. And uh, it, it lasted, at least until we had the privilege of working together, um, it had lasted about 35, 40 years, uh, affected her marriages, uh, affected her sense of self, affected her ability to even sleep and eat well. Uh, it was a dark shadow over her life, three freaking seconds. Now, again, there's a whole lot more to that than just those three, but no less than those three. So the return on investment for the kingdom of darkness is profound mm -hmm. with regard to the effect of abuse in terms of disintegrating some level of our faith, our ability to trust, our ability to dream and hope, and certainly our ability to receive and give delight and honor and pleasure to one another. So what I just put words to is, I think evil's design is to rupture faith and in many ways kill hope and to shame. Uh, love. And when it does, it really does take ascendancy and authority over the human spirit. Mm. What percent of people do you think have been affected by sexual assault trauma? Well, the best study I know um, is, is by a woman by the name of Diana E.H. Russell, who did a research project in like 1986. So we're talking many decades ago. And there's nothing, nothing comparable, literally done. And she followed about 955 women uh, and did interviews rather than paper and pencil tests. And what she found was uh, at the level of what could be called illegal, meaning it's a crime, she found one one out of three women have a history of past abuse. But when you include one event, one event of what could be called visual sexual abuse, where a man publicly displays his genitalia to a woman or exhibitionism, it jumped to 52%. Mm -hmm. So if we begin to include things like you, uh, uh, your, your father left pornography for you to find in the bathroom, um, your, your uncle watched triple X rated pornography or just even soft porn uh, when you were 12 years of age, you know, as you begin to include pornography and other forms of visual, verbal sexual abuse, honestly, 
I mean, this may sound highly exaggerated, but I don't think it's humanly possible to grow up in the 20th and 21st century as a woman Mm. and not be sexually violated. And some of those are more small T traumas. But really what I just put words to is at least one out of every two women have a history of capital T trauma by the age of 18. And nothing has been done equal in research to that particular work for men. But at least the ones that are close to it would indicate about one out of every four men have a history of abuse. And frankly, I think that's underreported. You and you just alluded to this, this pornography, this first encounter. I just when I heard you interviewed somewhere, you talked about how every person's first encounter with pornography, you would categorize as some sort of trauma. How so? I would. Well, you know, except for the two boys walking across a field and there's a bunched up magazine they pick and and look at. In one sense, there's no direct um, face or person doing the grooming. But if we think about the introduction in most occasions, and that's really about 78% of pornography introduction is by someone older and or more experienced. Uh, and that person is aroused to show you what they have found to be this great uh, treasure. And so the entry into involves a form of grooving, a, a setup, an arousal. Uh, and often the person showing you pornography is intending for you to be sexual in their presence and or sexual with them. So oftentimes there is uh, almost the use of pornography as a form of sex education to exploit the other person to have them involve themselves uh, with that perpetrator. So yeah, I would say the vast majority, uh, 75% or more, involves some element that's very similar to the grooming that's involved in all forms of sexual abuse. Mm. So I'm picturing like that moment and then the, the person who was essentially groomed and then traumatized by this first experience, there's shame that immediately descends. And it seems like shame always plays a role when sexuality is is not in this space of God's design. Why why are they so closely linked? Well, and I, I love Kurt Thompson and and his book is just a sweet, sweet gift mm-hmm. to the kingdom of God. Uh, but to underline what what I think Kurt says, what I would say, and that is shame is a disposition that comes in many ways as a result of the fall. And that is we have a proclivity to experience a a, a sense of something's wrong, not just I've done wrong, but something is deeply unwell within me. And it's hard to find a single word like I'm bad, not that I did bad. I am bad. But it's you you almost have to add words like toxic, dangerous, dark, wicked, ugly. And when you have all those words then the sense of I've trusted somebody who's just made a fool of me, they've used me, there's shame in that. There's always a sense of powerlessness. I can't stop this person who's bigger than me from doing what they're doing. And so there's a shame in in literally not having some ability to manage and change my present future in a way that I wish. But the real deep, deep sense of shame, Lori, that comes is that my body was aroused. So you can't be touched, just your skin. You just can't have your skin touched, let alone primary and or secondary. 
sexual body parts, let alone things like our hair or our buttocks or our leg. You can't be touched without some sensation. And that's what I mean by the word arousal, a sensation that even if I hate it, even if I'm terrified of it, my body experiences some degree of arousal. And this is a really awful sentence. I, I don't have a better word for it than this. But when we've got an abuser who knows really how to abuse, they're going to make sure your body felt arousal with regard to our primary or secondary sexual body parts. Mm. And that it's the darkest part of abuse that we were aroused in the midst of being violated. Mm. You often associate wisely contempt with shame. So again, I'm like envisioning what you're saying and it's horrific. And as someone who's experienced it, I get that. But then all of a sudden there's this anger, this contempt, this hatred that associates with this sphere. How and why? Well, I, I, I would love to think that through with regard to Romans uh, chapter two, verse four, where Paul says it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And let me say it as clearly as I know how to say it. An abused person never repents for being aroused. They don't repent for having been abused. They don't repent for being a victim, let alone what they experienced in their body. But I know with regard to the abuse I suffered in many ways, my effort to resolve the unaddressed shame and contempt in my own life led to massive misuse of my body, massive misuse of drugs, alcohol, other human beings, stealing cars, causing uh, difficulties uh, for my teachers, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, I did more harm to myself in addressing the abuse than in some ways my abusers did to me. Mm. So I have to bear a new level of kindness if I'm going to get to that issue of both shame and contempt. But you have Paul's next phrase, and that is, why do you treat the kindness of God with contempt? I think contempt is our way to manage shame with a level of control that annihilates ourselves so that we don't feel, so we don't want, so we don't risk. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is really only another form of self-hatred that allows us to lessen the experience of, of shame. So whether it's self-contempt, I'm such an ass, a fool, a jerk, or you're an idiot, uh, other-centered contempt, in either form, it's the same brick, uh, but directed in a very different direction that ultimately lessens our sense of shame. But in the long run, oh my goodness, it only intensifies it. So is the antidote then the kindness of God? Like, and I know it's probably not the one singular, but what's an antidote to that? Well, truth. I, I mean, as difficult and simplistic as that must sound, um, I just finished a few days ago with my colleagues what we call a recovery week, where we took 15 women, uh, often we take 15 men, and we basically step into the stories of their past abuse. And I'm telling you, three or four of them were excellent therapists. Uh, two or three people were involved in significant ministries. So these are, these are self-reflective, self-aware people. But when we come to shame, uh, our ability to interpret 
uh, our ability to see our, ourselves. It's like looking into a distorted carnival mirror. We just don't see the truth. So we need others to help us name our story, the particularities in our story, because often we skirt over stories of abuse with broad terms like, yeah, my father masturbated me or my father sexually abused me. And, and it's true, but you haven't actually entered the story where shame congeals. And that's a very important sentence. Like, our shame is not abstract. It's in the particular moments, like in a, a, an event of 30 minutes of being abused, there won't be shame equal through that whole 30 minutes. But in that particular minute, two minute period, that's where we're very reluctant to enter into what actually happened. Then if you add the fact that it's trauma, and in trauma, any form of trauma, our brains fragmented, uh, our ability to code language and therefore have something of a story like memory with a beginning, middle and an end. Uh, it just isn't there. So when I say tell the truth, I, I don't mean tell the truth. Yes, I was sexually abused. I'm talking about will you enter the story knowing it's fragmented with somebody who can walk with you to hold that story, even in its fragmentation, with a larger sense of continuity. That is crucial. I mean, it's I mean, I, kindness without truth ends up becoming ultimately quite self-absorptive. So what I'd say is truth and kindness, truth where you can enter your story more deeply than you have before. But in that, as shame shows itself and contempt rules, where kindness cuts through that, that violence mm -hmm. uh, and allows the heart to truly, in one sense, surrender to the presence of, of the comfort of God. When we go back to the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I've seen it, I've seen it literally thousands of times, people who enter the truth and allow their hearts to receive kindness. Um, I, I'm just telling you, that's the context for the Spirit of God to bring remarkable change. Well, as I'm envisioning that you're walking alongside someone moment, I'm like, okay, you know, there's there is a sweetness and a preciousness to an, an a non-believer, someone who isn't a believer in God, of just getting the story out. Period. But as I'm envisioning you talking with some of these women that you just walked with and inviting the spirit into that space, that's got to change. Like bring it to the next times a thousand level. Like how do you see God break through those moments more than just talk therapy could? Well, yeah, it, it, you're asking just a brilliant question. And it's also one where I just kind of go, well, <laughs> well no, <laughs> uh, I, you know, to, to be quite honest, I, I'm I'm more like, you know, uh, I, I'm there at the birth of a new heart and a new sense of grief and anger. And again, to hold those two together, a greater sense of grief opens the heart to comfort. But as you face the harm that has been done to you, there is something that rises with a sense of just 
um, it would be better for that man or woman to have a millstone wrapped around their neck and mm. thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. When you hear the righteousness of Jesus in his anger against those who have caused a little one to stumble, you better know that we are maturing as our grief and our anger in one sense, come to intersect at a new level of passion. And that that's just not something therapy can do, but therapy is a context, you know, in some ways, uh, like a doula, who's part of the birthing. But in that sense, I'm a part, not really a significant agent, because the Spirit of God is going to do things in the context of truth and kindness that actually don't seem to happen when there's only truth or only kindness. So there's a kind of this scenario that I keep running into with, with my clients when they experience a trauma and then get to the point later in life where maybe they let someone in um, to, to what was happening and they, they receive at some level this, this idea that you need to forgive and forget. You need to, to take what happened and leave it in the past. And, and that phrase has done so much damage to, to the clients because as you're expressing that this, this rage, this new level of rage and kindness that somehow get, get mixed in together is, is an appropriate response, that they're supposed to feel that intense level of anger of, of what happened. Yet when we gloss it over with just forgive, it's, it's quenching that. It's telling it, okay, just shove that down. And the only response that I've seen from my clients is to say, well, I don't have needs. I don't, I don't have feelings. I don't have emotions because they've been told they're kind of not allowed to. Oh, I, I, I so concur with you. I, I, I would use the phrase, it's just bullshit. The problem with the phrase. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the problem is the bullshit actually can grow things. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but this phrase, forgive and forget, here's the dilemma. It's true, but also Romans 8.28 is true. That is, we are more than conquerors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when we use truth to deny truth, then in many ways we're doing what evil does when it quotes scripture. Mm-hmm. So when we are to forgive, what we need to grasp at that moment is that if I don't address the harm I've done to myself— and and face the fact that indeed in the arousal and shame and my contempt that then carried on for five decades uh, with immense consequences that I need to engage his delight for me in spite of my failure. So when we understand what forgiveness holds for the shift of how we engage kindness with ourselves, then kindness for those who have done us harm becomes part of the wisdom of knowing how to address the invitation to others to come to the party. So, you know, when I say to people, look, forgiveness involves doing good and your abusers need good in the same way that those who have cancer do. So three treatment processes, radiation, chemotherapy and surgery, if we change the language, it's burning poisoning, cutting. So we forget that forgiveness is a force. It is a, I will take on the cancer 
in, in my own heart and the cancer in your heart to eventually invite you to a reality of what I've come to know to be good and true. And that is there is delight for those who return to the party to receive the care uh, and forgiveness of God. So in that sense, I do believe in forgiveness as a very central work, but not initially not as the primary task that then resolves supposedly all the other issues that linger in the human heart. It's just not true. Mm. So good. Okay. So this is uh, Lori still working out some of her <laughs> trauma, but Matt and I are writing a book uh, now um, on our marriage and some of the, the trauma that resurfaced and really connected to my sexual orientation. And, um, my, my trauma brain and my sexual orientation paved a path for me to look at exiting our marriage as like the most viable solution. So after our second daughter was born, this memory resurfaced and Matt, who I was like, no, he's not like other men. I choose him. I love him. I w I'm heart connected to him. I want to be with him. This memory resurfaced when my second daughter was born and Matt looked like a monster and um, like he became the symbol of this past pain, I guess just like, why does that happen in marriages? And um, like, I've met many women straight, however, and, and men, and, and they reach this point in their marriage where something just comes up, just resurfaces and it wreaks havoc. And as it did on, on my marriage and really, like I said, my trauma paired up with my sexual orientation. And I was like, I just need to leave. So why does this happen? And, and how can we engage this without just like drowning in this swamp of confusion? Oh, Lori, I, I would rather now start asking you how you engaged. But <laughs> I, to, to be uh, responsible to your question, what I'd say is um, we don't know why, like decades later, yeah. um, memories yeah. surface. We really don't comprehend how that actually happens, but we have so much data, whether you call it repression, suppression, uh, you know, hidden memories. I mean, there was a study done with absolutely well-documented sexual abuse. They went to a hospital. The hospital took rape kits and, and had all the information. 68% of the women who were later, 20 years later, asked about that event said they never were abused. Hmm. So we, we just have enough data to be able to come back and go, look, we don't want to deal with the volatility of the heartache and shame uh, that, that resides. Uh, and so whether we knew the event, but don't actually give it significance with regard to how it affected us, or we don't know of the event, literally our memory has largely erased it, uh, all I can say is that somehow in about the mid-30s, it seems to be, especially with children, meaning mm -hmm. for women, as they begin to have children and have a regard for wanting to protect and care for their children, all of a sudden, the absence of care and protection in their family of origin the issues of the endangerment of their own children in such a deeply fallen world. And then just this other third X factor that we really don't know. But to say, 
often mid-30s seems to be where triggers occur. And all of a sudden, literally, you turn a corner and there is a monster, as you described. And then here's the complication. Rather than face the unaddressed memories Even if you have a portion of it, you still have much that you've not engaged. It is easier to scapegoat. And I think that phenomena of scapegoating is a um, deep phenomena for all humanity, not just Mm -hmm. those who've been abused. But we want to find a face that actually serves to embody all the unaddressed stuff inside of us. Uh, and, And who better than... You know, somebody who has bad breath, farts, and, and doesn't know that much about Argyle socks. <laughs> hey Wow, sick burn. <laughs> it's true. And it, but it's, it, I don't know, it's so hard because even in hearing myself like talk about it again, and I was just writing some pieces of this story right before recording, it's so. It's hard to articulate because, as you're saying, the parts of our brain that shut down because of trauma, the the broca part of our brain that just shuts down during trauma. But it's hard to articulate even in that moment because all you want to do is push eject. You you don't even know how to rationalize with yourself like this. I love this. (laughs) stinky guy (laughs) like I kept like staring at him and I was like maybe if he cries and like if I feel enough of his pain like this is just gonna make my heart really melt and I'll be all better but I just wanted to leave like everything about me was like I am all done and I already you know I wasn't naturally attracted to men anyway so why am I in this marriage so in that moment I'm not the only one who's felt that because many of you have reached out what do we do in that moment, Dan? Like where it just feels like you're re-traumatized, you're screaming, you've tried all the tools in your toolbox, because that's what I did. I was like, I've already processed other trauma in my life. Like I, I tried every tool. What do we do to keep us from pushing escape? Well, it's it's like a very, very dangerous road on a very high mountain uh, scape. And you've you got to have guardrails. Yeah. You know, at one level, the guardrail is in being triggered, in whatever the trigger is, to, in one sense, indulge, flight, fight, or yes. freeze. That's yes. what we're going to do. Right. We're going to do some portion of that. But to indulge it as if it is the only escape process or resolution process is actually giving trauma more trauma and therefore, you know, it's multiplicative, if not exponential. So I think at one level to be when I'm triggered and I still get triggered, my abuse still shows itself after all the work I've done. And I've done a lot of work. But in that sense, is there generosity? Is there ability to welcome Welcome the trigger, welcome the unfaced memories, actually with a sense of intrigue, openness, of course, horror and fear, but on the other hand, more of a welcome. I think that's one of the tasks with the unfaced, unnamed realities that are in every human being. Do we have a stance of welcome? Mm. Uh, if not, then we're going to do all the structures we've used before, eject, fight, just shut down. And it's best just to be able to say, I know those part processes. I'm not much of a fleer. I'm, I'm more of a bar fighter. So, you know, <laughs> to be able to go, 
Um, I'm not going to escape. I'm going to take my wife on and tell her what a wretched human being she is. Yeah. Well, that's where my trigger, when related not only to the interplay current, but also to structures that have to do with my family of origin, my borderline mother, uh, my avoidant father, my past. You know, in other words, we are such complex, beautiful beings. It's already said in one thir- Psalm 139, if we can just, in one sense, slow everything down. But on the other hand, uh, to allow ourselves to say, I'm a mess. And this is not going to get resolved with a Bible verse or one prayer uh, or one confession to a friend. This is going to require a journey, uh, an an effort to do the 500-mile trip. So that means I'm going to be talking to a good therapist. I'm going to be talking in a good group. Uh, I'm going to be engaging, reading, thinking, because in some sense, I'm the journey. I'm the actual continent the journey is about to discover, which means I need as much data about myself and about the human heart that I can ascertain to begin that process of dealing with, just as you said, Broca's area. If people don't know what Broca's area is, uh, it's on our left frontal lobe. It's what manages our ability to have language, and therefore, it actually is our ability to hold memory. When we're in trauma, that begins to literally go offline. But so do a lot of other parts, of our, our hippocampus. Now, does everyone need to know something of the nature of the limbic system to be able to make sense of what they're going through? And this is carefully, carefully said. No, not entirely. But the more harm you've endured, the more you need clarity about the nature of what's happening underneath the hood, yep. rather than react or shut down. And those are the two sides to say, make sure on that dangerous mountain road, you don't go over one end or the other, but you stay at least in the middle until you can begin to get to more, um, more contours that feel safer. So this is just now Lori's just going to go through therapy. Just kidding. But a little bit. I really appreciate what you said, Dan. And Matt has actually quoted you to me recently, because as much as I have been able to do um, that 500 mile journey of my own soul again with this ver- this trauma round, uh, I can still get triggered, too. So I really appreciate how you said that. And, and even the grace, I'm just hearing kindness toward yourself instead of being like, fight or flight. I've got to exit. When you still get triggered, Dan, what do you do? Well, uh, Becky and I have worked a lot on, on our marriage because she has a history of abuse. I have a history of abuse. Yeah. Uh, she is more of a go away person. Mm. I'm more against. Uh, and our, our, our conflicts, uh, I mean, like we took a long walk today and at one point uh, we were just laughing uh, mm-hmm. and and in the context of the laughing she had i mean she's i'm an aging man she's an aging woman and she was starting to laugh and i could tell that she was moving toward the possibility of what we'll call a u- urinal disenfranchisement <laughs> uh, and, and I, and I, I, I think those are funny moments. So I was trying to make her laugh more. And, and she just literally, instead of just like bending over, she just stood up and she just started yelling. And it was like, what? Mm. What? I mean, these kind of moments that actually happen quite often. Why now? Mm. Well, the rest of the walk was trying for both of us to unpack 
what seemed to be a playful moment she experienced as really shaming. And again, we've had moments like that where uh, it was hilarious for both of us. So what happened for the turn? I'm not clear yet, but we got we got to a point of being able to hold one another as we walk back to say, you know, we all our efforts to understand this at the moment aren't going anywhere well. But can we just submit this to one another that there's grief, there's still honor. The next time it happens, I'll probably still try to. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but <laughs> our invitation is, can we be curious together, hold one another, not give in to shame? And nobody can have a contempt-free marriage. But you can at least commit yourself to not letting contempt against yourself or against the other win in a way in which you return to, to, to the past structures uh, that have worked in the past. And for us, that's allowed us to get to uh, abusive encounters I had with my mother. Uh, I began to name that eight or nine years ago. Well, The Wounded Heart doesn't have any of that in it. Uh, the new, newer book that I wrote called Healing the Wounded Heart, uh, I deal with some of the reality of abuse with my mother that I didn't even have data about mm-hmm. uh, when I wrote the book back in 1988. So there was a progression, a movement, and the surprise and paradox of maturity is the more we grow, the more we're aware of how much we need to be forgiven and held really in honor and delight. So precious. And I just love the gentleness with which you talk about yourself and even your response and the gentleness you talk about with her. And I'm I'm just seeing, okay, how can we implement that even further in our marriage and how I view myself and how I view those those triggering moments? Dan, just yeah. last question for you. Just if someone's listening and they're, uh, I don't know, something stirring that they're remembering something or they're like, oh man, I've never prom- like processed that first encounter with pornography or man, was that, what would you say to them as far as perhaps a step they could take? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to do is be able to say to another human being, I've been sexually harmed. Uh, I, I have heartache with regard or shame with regard to something about my sexuality. And and that ability to speak it to another human being outs us. It puts us in a position where we're actually asking for help. Uh, and maybe the person we've spoken to isn't uh, well-versed, well-trained, but at least they can invite us to say, thank you. Thank you for sharing and I will pray, but I'll also be asking of you, will you go the next step? Will you take the next step to say, could we read a book together? Could we listen to podcasts together? Could we um, could we find a really good therapist for you uh, in your area so that we can begin, we, you, uh, you and me as friends, but you can begin that process uh, of, of reclaiming and restoring and reconciling more parts of your own heart, more parts of who you are with the living God, and ultimately more of who you are with me and others. When that begins to be the case, I'm telling you, people move. Mm-hmm. So, so good. Dan, just thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, Lori, Matt, Steve, uh, an honor and delight. I I would love to be back whenever you want. Oh, man, we would Mm. absolutely treasure it. Um, 
Man, so for those of you who are listening, we will connect you to all of Dan Allender's books and, well, maybe not all of his books, but the ones that we mentioned, um, but and the social media and the very, very valuable, the Allender Center and those groups that he was talking about. You can connect and look those up and do some of your own soul work, this 500-mile journey, which would be incredibly worth it. Um, but if something spoke to you on this podcast, I am 100% sure that it will through the rest of his stuff. So Dan, thanks so much. My honor. Thank you. Now, for those of you who are joining us next week, our question of the week is, what was your first car and what does it tell us about your personality? We asked this last week with Mark Brogop. And so I'm just curious about y'all. Just let us know. We're keeping it light and fluffy on this one. But to respond, find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, Lori Krieg, L-A-U-R-I-E, all the vowels and K-R-I-E-G, a couple more vowels. <laughs> the real German version. Uh, and additionally, we would love to uh, hear from you. If you want to join our Facebook hole in my heart podcast group, you got to search for it and then you got to ask to join. Um, I think I asked you a few questions too about why. I don't know. I just want to, I just want to hear from you guys. We're going to vet it a little bit. Um, so a bunch of you have found me this week. And so I'm adding you to the group, but I am going to be posting a question, a few questions there just about what you think about the podcast so that we can keep improving this. Uh, but guys, just thanks for being a part of the family. I'm just, this, this is such a gift to be able to talk to people like Dan Allender and receive and then just pour it back out on the church. So thanks all for listening and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast. We'll see you next week. So I just drank something really gross what'd you drink so i bought okay what's the soda it's like the soda water nestle brand so not even Lacroix. yeah S sweetened by splenda so already gross mm -hmm. double gross yeah. stevia. mango stevia, stevia. yeah stevia right. in the car 70 degree day Ooh. car's what 80 Smoking hot, and I just drank it a lot. And oh. the baby was like, I'm wiggling around, like, yeah. what the heck are you what doing to me? What is this? But then I thought of Matt and your family heritage of Tejas, hmm? Texas, and you guys drink hot Dr. Pepper. It's ew. Okay, first off, it's not, it's not. It's ew, and it is your family heritage. <laughs> no, it is my family heritage, but it's not, okay, it's not like, Car heated Dr. Pepper. <laughs> What's the difference between car heat and microwave heated Dr. Okay, but, Pepper? But no, this is like like a hot cocoa style like thing or like a hot cider. Is it like oh but it's okay? Still like so you microwave peppery. Dr. Pepper. Okay, so it's not like a special still brewing flat. process. No, no, it's it's straight it's, up regular it Dr. Pepper. You, you put it in the microwave and then you put a splash of lemon juice in there. Everything about that's disgusting. Dr. Pepper. Hot. Hot Dr. Hot Pepper. Dr. Is, Pepper. And I haven't even tried it. Yes, I have tried it. It still has the like tang of soda or pop. Yeah. <laughs> pop. Pop. Coke. But it flattens it? No. It takes out the, the Matt carbonate. Matt was trying to say there. that it it's did by there. comparing it to hot cocoa. He is a liar. No, it's, it's, I'm saying the temperature wise, like it's a hot cocoa yeah. or hot cider but carbonated type of. It's not like, oh, there's a warm, disgusting, flat soda in the middle of a car. It was still carbon <laughs> carbonated. 
and car heated. I don't think there's any difference between car heating and microwave heating and hot it Dr. Pepper it, is disgusting. It does not get up to 160 degrees or whatever in the so car. So you're just saying there's like you just know, a temperature thing. Uh, in in the south, some places, they actually brew their sun tea, tea in yeah. the sun. Yeah. So What's the difference between sun tea and hot Sun, car tea, and your microwave nasty Dr. Pepper. I'm saying there is a vast temperature difference. Sun tea How never gets. How do you gets, know this? Sun tea doesn't boil. When you steep regular tea in water, it's boiling water. Right. But and the sun tea takes it. You have it out there over time. Yeah, it's like a slow brew. It's right, right. Like, but it doesn't know if it's in a car or out in the natural environment. No, I agree no, with. that is there's no difference. <laughs> but what but I'm saying is the microwave, the microwave it gets too hotter. It's not like a oh this is slightly above room temperature. No, the, my what I just drank of that Splenda infused nasty Nestle. Nasty Nestle. <laughs> nasty Nestle. It was probably it was probably it was lukewarm. Hot. No, it was straight up. Your nasty Dr. Pepper. No, you've never had it. <laughs> I tried one. to have a sip once when we were and dating, my, and I recall it yeah, was gross. No. But I probably didn't say it. No, I probably did when we were dating. <laughs> but I was I, we're going to let Steve be the... the we're going to bring you some. We'll bring you I'll This will be anything. the question of the week, everyone. <laughs> put some Dr. Pepper in a mug uh-huh. in the microwave for, how for about 45 seconds. Okay. And prepare And then to put a barf. squirt of lemon a juice squirt in there. of lemon juice. And you sip it. <laughs> you sip it. You don't guzzle question. it. It's the question it's of the a week. It's wine. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> sipping mead. <laughs> I mean, I will try. I will try anything once. Okay, so, do it. Yeah. And it's, then it's also. It's not going to be as disgusting as no, Nasty I, Nestle. <laughs> Gro- I, no, let's do a car, car comparison. We'll do a car version. We'll do a microwave version, and you're going to not be able to tell the difference. Matt, you think because you speak with your counselor authoritative voice. No, I, I speak with this. experience voice, not just having heard about it and never. You haven't experienced Dr. Pepper hot from a car. I have not. So but what? I've experienced other See, things. She just Actually, says things with no, this counselor authority I know, that you believe in. I know 100%. The bottle of soda that you were talking about, because when I started to come to work, did you try drinking it too? I I thought it was mine. I had a fresh lemon flavored one, and I was like getting ready, but it was the one that Juliet had in the back of the car that she had somehow, when getting out of the car, moved to the front cup holder. And I took a swig, and I'm like, this is disgusting. And how did so it get to the peach? origin of what yeah, you just I drank had it too. on your way here? We're all getting sick. Yeah. Are we ready to call Give that? me a glass of Dr. Pepper hot. Hot Dr. Pepper. Hot Dr. Pepper. I think they just call it hot doctor. Hot doctor. In Texas. Yeah, hot doctor. Uh, <laughs> Splash yeah. of lemon. You go into some Sour. saloon yeah. in Texas. Give me that hot doctor. need a hot doctor. <laughs> Splash of sour in there. But in a hospital setting, yes. that means something different. That, you're right. <laughs> Give me a hot doctor. If it's, if it's a daytime With soap a opera. Yeah. Yeah, well, could be something else. Well, are we okay. ready? Here we go. Oh, boy. <laughs>